San Diego begins reopening with cautious optimism. I think that there's still some wariness about reopening and then having to shut down again. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A forum focuses on vaccine hesitancy in San Diego's black community. There's a significant health hesitancy in the community as a whole, but especially with African-Americans. A tale of two economies in San Diego, rising high tech and falling tourism, and an exploration of the enduring power of amazing grace. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Is it the light at the end of the tunnel or a shot in the dark? Governor Gavin Newsom's abrupt ending of the state's stay-at-home order is a beacon of good news in the midst of what experts have dubbed the darkest months of the virus. Now many San Diego businesses are scrambling to provide outdoor dining, haircuts, and other services to an eager public. State officials say the move back to the purple tier is based on trends that show virus rates declining and hospitalizations easing over the next month. But with so much about the rate of vaccinations and the variants still unknown, much of the optimism remains cautious. Joining me is Lori Weisberg, who covers tourism and the hospitality industry for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And Lori, welcome. Thank you. What immediate effect has the lifting of the stay-at-home order had on San Diego businesses? The biggest change you're seeing is that restaurants that have been limited to just takeout and delivery can now reopen for outdoor dining only, not indoors yet. And another big change for businesses that have been shut down completely were hair salons, nail salons, barbershops, personal care services. They can be open indoors with what the state says is modifications, you know, capacity limits. But um, they were completely shut down. So they, they're, they're reopening. And another change um, that people may not be aware of, I think even during the shutdown orders, hotels weren't allowed to accept guests for anything other than essential workers. They are now reopened for business for you know, any kind of travel. Um, zoos, aquariums, museums can reopen. Um, that, that That's outdoor only though. So we already heard an announcement from the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park that they will reopen Saturday. Um, and then we're waiting an announcement from SeaWorld. Are some of the people that you spoke with surprised by the state's decision? 
the restaurants themselves got a little bit of a heads up. So they got word like a day or two before that this was, was coming. And they've been through this drill so many times. I think that there's still some wariness about reopening and then having to shut down again. However, I think this time around, I think it's such a, there's been such a blowback on, on these on again, off again orders that there's a feeling that we may not see another shutdown again for a while. So, um, so I think there's a sense of relief that they can start to gradually reopen the restaurants in particular. A number of big restaurateurs had put some of their venues in what they call hibernation, and they were just going to wait it out. I think now you're going to see awakening from that hibernation. And um, I should point out that many of them say that, you know, they cannot survive on outdoor dining alone. Yeah, what was the governor's decision based on? He talked about projections. Looking at um, hospitalization rates, ICU rates, um, and they're projecting that in about four weeks out, they think they're going to see these uh, ICU rates and the capacity rates increase substantially. The, when they did put the stay-at-home order, in, um, it was if you had anything 50, 15% or less um availability that it would um, that you'd have to go to the stay-at-home order. They're now projecting that within a month we'll, we'll see those occupancies rise and there'll be 33%, around a little more than 33% by February 21st. They seem to be eager to open it, even, even though it's four weeks away, they seemed willing to, to take that risk. You mentioned how tenuous some of the restaurant operations are because of this whole pandemic experience. Do we have any sense how much San Diego's restaurants and hospitality services have lost because of the lockdown? I think um, a lot of your fast casual places that can survive on takeout and are known more for takeout can do well. The bottom line is most of them that aren't heavily reliant on delivery normally and takeout say that um, they were lucky to be breaking e- breaking even. Many have losses and profits profits are rare. I talked to one restaurateur who told me yesterday that he hasn't taken a paycheck for himself since December of last year. So that was kind of a mantra that I heard yesterday was, you know, we we can't survive on outdoor alone. What are county officials saying about when we might be able to move into that less restrictive tier and maybe have in-person indoor dining and all of those things that the businesses are, are looking forward to? So those are that's based on certain metrics and based on our latest coronavirus numbers, it looks like it could be a while. Based on these 14-day positive test rates and a number of cases per 100,000. And so to get to the red tier, you can't be at anything other than you have to have a seven-day positivity rate of no higher than 8% and no more than seven cases per 100,000. Uh, as of uh, recently, we were at 60.6 cases per um, 100,000. So they've estimated that we would need to average about 239 cases a day to reach that. And right now we're in the thousand. San Diego County officials are quick to warn the public, though, that despite this limited reopening, that we have a long way to go. What are they warning people about and what the, do they need us to do? The same thing, no gatherings with people of different households, masking, socially distant, don't break, you know, businesses don't break the rules um, because it's going to take quite a while before we can reduce the, the current case rate significantly enough to reach 
the red tier, which is still restrictive, but it's it, we need to have far fewer cases uh, per day. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. And Lori, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. A recent survey in San Diego County found that when people were asked if they'd get the COVID vaccine, about 20% of white, Hispanic, and Asian people said no. That number doubled to nearly 40% among Black people who were asked. To address why the hesitancy exists and dispel myths, the Multicultural Health Foundation will be holding a panel discussion called Don't Hesitate to Vaccinate. Dr. Rodney Hood is president and chairman of the Multicultural Health Foundation. He is also a physician and expert on health disparities, medical history, and racism in medical care. Dr. Hood, welcome. Thank you very much. You are on the panel with the Multicultural Health Foundation. Tell me about that panel and what you all hope to achieve. We uh, hope to continue to do outreach uh, to the uh, San Diego community, especially the minority community, on staying safe uh, during a COVID and actually uh, vaccinations. There's a significant health uh, hesitancy uh, in the community as a whole, but especially with African-Americans. And so the panel is designed to uh, bring knowledge and education and try to answer some of the uh, questions that would begin to uh, diminish the hesitancy. And why do you think that hesitancy exists? Um, I think it's uh, multifactorial, and I think it differs from one community to the other. We have three groups of individuals as far as a vaccine. We've got, I call them vaccine acceptors. So there are those of us who are not hesitant, uh, just show the access and, uh, and, and where it is, and they'll take it. Then we've got the hesitancy group, and part of that hesitancy group is what I call vaccine objective. So for religious reasons or whatever reasons, they, they uh, are, are not going to take the vaccine. And uh, we want to have a message for all three groups. I think there's a history in this uh, country, uh, especially in the African-American community, where the Blacks have not been treated well in the uh, health system. There have been inhumane uh, experimentations done on uh, Black folks. Uh, People talk about Tuskegee, and that is usually mentioned. However, many people are not even sure what that means, but they know it's bad. But it really predates Tuskegee, where there were multiple inhumane uh, experiments specifically on African-Americans. There's a book by uh, Harriet Washington, a medical apartheid that actually describes many of these. And because of that legacy, I think is the reason why it's so high in African-American community. They just don't trust the uh, health system, don't trust scientists, and uh, many times just don't trust doctors. Mm. And, you know, I want to turn now a bit to to the disparities um, that exist, the health disparities, particularly when it comes to COVID. You know, why is COVID spreading faster in the black and brown communities? Hmm. There's a saying in the uh, black community is that when white folks catch a cold, black folks catch pneumonia. And uh, what was meant by that is usually when something uh, happens, uh, whether it's health or otherwise, uh, the uh, black community tends to uh, get affected by it more. And it's many factors. Uh, Let's talk about social determinants. So uh, the uh, population that is more vulnerable to these infections because 
of their living conditions, multi-generational living conditions, the more Blacks tend to live in more urban areas and it's not a spread out. So this is an infectious disease. And so the closer intimacy you have in populations, the easier it is to spread. So that's one reason. Another reason is uh, Blacks have excessive health disparities with uh, comorbidities. They tend to have more diabetes, obesity, asthma, cardiovascular disease. And although uh, that does not cause them to catch it easier, but if they do catch it, those comorbidities put them at a much greater risk of developing more severe disease, winding up in the hospital in death. So um, um, I think it's for all those reasons uh, that you see it higher in the African-American community. It is not genetics. Um, I often get asked, is there something uh, uh, in the genes of Blacks that cause that? And the answer is no. Uh, it, it is uh, most, mostly the uh, social determinants. Uh, we see that in the uh, Latino um, population as well. As a matter of fact, here in San Diego, Latinos um, are probably number one in uh, getting uh, the infection for the same reasons. And, you know, earlier you mentioned that some people are reluctant to get the vaccine. One reason I've heard is because of allergic reactions. What do people need to know about allergic reactions to the coronavirus vaccine? So, uh, yes, with this new coronavirus uh, vaccine, they have been reported. Right now, there are two that have been approved, uh, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Both of them are what we call messenger RNA vaccines. Um, and um, I'm, uh, I, I don't really see a significant difference between the two as far as efficacy. They're both 94, 95% effective. Um, and, uh, but both of them, we have seen uh, people have allergic reactions. Uh, so uh, if, if indeed you already know you have a history of allergies, especially allergy, um, the type of allergy we call anaphylactic reaction, where you have to take epinephrine or have an EpiPen, it's uh, best that you have a discussion with your uh, provider prior to getting the uh, vaccine, but that does not mean you should not get it. So that's why you should have that conversation. With new variants of this virus, are there any concerns about the effectiveness of the current vaccines? So right now, the current one that we're dealing with is about 94, 95% effective. With the variants, it may be decrease that effectiveness to less than 94, 95%, but not below the level that we would still call effective. But yes, that is a worry. We do need to continue to monitor and uh, see how well the population does uh, as they get these uh, variances to um, see how effective they are. You know, if someone wants to get a vaccination, what should they do? There are many options. First of all, uh, contact your uh, provider. The other option is to uh, go to the county sites. There's more than that that I just mentioned. And so you have to be uh, persistent. Don't just look at one. If one doesn't have an opening, go to the other. I've been speaking with Dr. Rodney Hood, president and chairman of the Multicultural Health Foundation. Dr. Hood, thanks. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. The panel is this Thursday from 5.30 to 6.30. For more information, you can go to kpbs.org.
Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. As we mentioned earlier in the show, San Diego's restaurants and hotels are now allowed a partial reopening because the state's stay-at-home order has been lifted. But the outlook for San Diego's huge hospitality industry this year is still uncertain. Meanwhile, the number of high-tech hubs and developments are increasing across the county. Some see the rise in tech and the slump in hospitality as a trend that could shift the economy of San Diego. Joining me is reporter Ramin Skiba. He's writing for Voice of San Diego. And Ramin, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Can you remind us about the impact of the pandemic on the tourism and hospitality industry in San Diego? I believe you call it a collapse. Yeah, it's it's been rough. I mean, it's one of the biggest sectors of our economy, and there are a lot of jobs associated with it, you know, with uh, hotels, with the convention center. I mean, you know, with Comic-Con going virtual uh, and just like every other event over the past year. You know, it's, it's been tough for a lot of people. And at the same time, plans have been moving forward to create a number of high-tech hubs in San Diego. And they're, they're not just in the North County anymore, are they? That's right. They're moving downtown. And it's a, a bigger trend than I even realized. There's uh, Horton Plaza downtown. There's the new uh, big waterfront site. Uh, UC San Diego Extension is going to be nearby downtown. And, there, and there's a possibility for even uh, another, another place near Petco Park. I think San Diegans are very familiar with the old Horton Plaza. What's the new Horton Plaza going to look like? It looks like it'll be a, a pretty large complex, and uh, it maybe it looks like it's potentially even bigger than what was there before. And they're saying that there could be as many as 4,000 employees there, and which, which is a lot. And at the waterfront, they're saying it's going to be an eight-acre site and uh, along Harbor Drive. And uh, that also could be 4,000 permanent jobs, too. So, so this, this could be a, a large number of jobs coming with these sites. Now, are these startups or are they established tech companies moving here? Well, from what we can tell, it's, it's both. But there's definitely been a lot of uh, money going into startups as well, even during the pandemic. So it's not like it's slowed down during the pandemic. So just as these uh, new hubs are popping up, there's also a bunch of startups getting money or, or, or even you know, popping up on their own as well. And so it's, it's not clear exactly which firms are going to be at which site. It's too early to know that. But um, from what we can tell, you know, there'll be a lot of a lot of these San Diegan companies, as well as even some from L.A. and uh, the Bay Area coming here, too. Okay, so why is San Diego becoming attractive to the high-tech industry? 
That's a good question. I think it's partly because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of potential workers in these places. Um, also, the cost of living is, I mean, it seems high here, but it's actually slightly less high. Uh, it, it's not as high compared to San Francisco. And so that's part of it. Moving again, back to the tourism and hospitality sector. Uh-huh. It, that has been, as you mentioned, I've been a mainstay of the San Diego economy. What are the prospects for like big conventions and tourism to bounce back this year? From the reporting I've done, it seems like there's a good chance that it will get eventually get back close to normal. But the question is, you know, how long that will take. And so if the pandemic lasts, you know, if, if we're able to get, get people back to work and reopen more in the next few months, then things can get back to normal, you know, fairly quickly. You know, Comic-Con could be a live event this year. And, you know, there's a bunch of other conferences that people would love to have live again. But if, if it lasts all year and we can't be meeting with a large number of people in person until next year then it'll be a lot tougher. So and, and it's, it's possible, you know, it, it might not get back to normal if, if this lasts, you know, another year. But it's, it's, it's hard to tell. Yeah, you spoke to the head of Comic-Con, and it sounded like from that conversation, if you can tell us about it, that uh-huh. he was really concerned that if it's a virtual event, if it has to be a virtual event again this year, it might be hard to, to make it a normal event in, in the following year. I did speak with them and Comic-Con, like with other big conventions, you know, they, they get income from one event and they can use that as uh, for their budget for the next event. But, you know, you can't get much income from a virtual event comparatively, even, even for something as popular as Comic-Con. And so I'd imagine that it'll be tougher next year if they have to go virtual again. Is the switch from a tourism-based economy to a high-tech economy something that seems likely to continue here? I'm not sure if we'll see a switch, but I do think we'll see, you know, there's definitely a rise in tech. And so that is definitely a trend that's happening. Uh, the question is, you know, whether it might supplant the, the hospitality and, and, and tourism sectors as, you know, top industries in the area. And, and that remains to be seen. So I, I think we, we could just have sort of two really huge economies in the area and hospitality uh, will just not be as dominant as before. If high tech does continue to surge, though, there's a big difference in the type of skills required by high tech and life sciences and then in most hospitality work. So is there any idea how San Diego's workforce might transition? That's difficult because, you know, only a limited number of people have those skills needed for uh, tech jobs as well as, you know, biotech and life sciences because there's a, there's a wide range of firms that are growing here. But that's part of where uh, I think UC San Diego uh, Extension is trying to position itself is to help train, train or retrain workers and provide more education. And so I'd, I'd imagine there may even be potentially people who used to work uh, in the hospitality industry, maybe saying, you know, I don't want to be a manager at this hotel anymore. I want to try, you know, working at uh, this other place. And they might get the training that they need and make the transition. So if, if the shift is as big as it could be, then there could be a lot of a lot of workers who are looking to you know pivot into new jobs. I've been speaking with the reporter Ramin Skiba. His article can be found in Voice of San Diego. And Ramin, thank you. Thank you. This month marks the midpoint in Gavin Newsom's term as California's governor. The moment arrives as he is facing a recall effort that's gaining steam and could make it to the ballot. This week, we'll be sharing stories that explore Gavin Newsom's successes 
and shortcomings. To start our series, Cap Radio's politics reporter, Nicole Nixon, has this look at who's behind the recall and whether it could actually succeed. Diana Chokan is posted up in the parking lot of a grocery store in Citrus Heights, a suburb about 20 minutes north of Sacramento. She's wearing a neon green vest and her car is draped with an enormous banner that reads, Recall Gavin Newsom. I'm a hairstylist. When my salon got shut down, I had a lot of time on my hands. The 42-year-old comes here three days a week to gather signatures for a petition to get Newsom recalled. I got involved because it was disturbing to see all the businesses closing. Chokan actually carries a list of reasons she thinks Newsom should get the boot. Pandemic shutdowns are at the top, but there's a lot more. We have the highest gas tax in the nation, the highest homelessness in the nation. He's promoting fear. Gavin Newsom goes to the French Laundry and eats without a mask. On any given day, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of tables like hers up and down California. Organizers say they've collected over a million signatures. But if they want to get a recall on the ballot, they'll need to get about a million more in the next six weeks. For a governor facing the very real threat of a recall election, Newsom has a high approval rating, 58 percent, according to the most recent Public Policy Institute of California survey. That's largely because Democrats have given the governor high marks throughout the pandemic, says Mark Baldessari. He's with the PPIC. People uh, are very polarized in terms of how they think about their leaders. So you're going to find people who have very strong feelings for and against this governor. Baldessari says there are big differences between this recall effort and the 2003 recall of former Democratic Governor Gray Davis. Democrats did not have such a tight hold on the state back then. And Davis's approval sunk to a record low of 24 percent in the months before his ouster. There haven't been voter surveys since the most recent stay-at-home orders or the French Laundry incident when Newsom was photographed dining with a group of lobbyists at the exclusive Napa Valley restaurant. But the most recent surveys show Democratic voters still continue to support Newsom, while Republicans disapprove. Voters' biggest cue will always be partisanship, as much as people don't want to admit that. Renee Van Vechten is a political science professor at the University of Redlands. She says while Newsom is clinging to the good graces of most California voters, there's a lot riding on the next few weeks, including the all-important COVID-19 vaccine distribution. It is do or die time for the governor because he does face the very real possibility of a recall election. If the recall does qualify for the ballot, an election would likely be later this summer. And Van Vechten says Newsom shouldn't rely too heavily on his base to carry him through. He's on a mountain and he's driving around on a very narrow road. Could he go off the cliff at any time? It's possible. It just one little turn of the wheel and he's over the hill. That is what a French laundry incident represents. And she says voters may not have the appetite for another scandal. In Sacramento, I'm Nicole Nixon. We'll have another story tomorrow looking at Governor Gavin Newsom's successes and failures on climate change and wildfires. Find more at capradio.org slash Newsom midterm.
Americans eat an average of 16 pounds of fish and shellfish a year. That number may be higher in San Diego, where the fish taco can be found on restaurant menus from the iconic Roberto's Taco Shops to George's at the Cove in La Jolla. Now a San Diego aquaculture technology startup is betting that Americans' love for seafood will extend to fish fillets grown from fish cells. San Diego-based Blue Nalu says it raised $60 million it needs to build a pilot factory that will enable the company to bring eight species of cell-based seafood to restaurants. Joining me to talk about this blending of aquaculture with food science is Lou Cooperhouse, president and CEO of Blue Nalu. Lou, welcome. Well, thank you for having me on your show today. It's a real pleasure. So, you know, we often hear about technology companies disrupting existing industries to improve upon them. So did the idea for developing fish grown from fish cells come from a need to disrupt the seafood industry? Not at all, Jade. It really came from the fact that uh, the world needs to come up with a new solution to feed the planet. Um, Today, we have a tremendous global supply chain gap. We just cannot keep up with uh, what comes out of the ocean or what comes out of aquaculture as global demand for seafood is actually at an all-time high. People just love seafood. They are moving away from red meat towards the health and nutrition attributes that seafood offers. And today we're shipping seafood, you know, as many as uh, five, 10,000 miles from point of capture to point of consumption. What Blue Nile was doing is creating a far more sustainable uh, footprint for seafood that's instead of being supply restricted is actually demand driven, putting these production facilities close to population and really democratizing seafood uh, for all that, uh, for all that uh, are seeking that as part of their diet. So it's really a a new solution, not just wild caught and farm raised, but now cell based with all the positive benefits of seafood, but without the mercury microplastics or environmental contaminants that might be associated with seafood we consume today. And Blue Nalu has been around for three years now. What kind of trial and error has there been in the process of developing uh, an acceptable substitute to wild-caught or farm-raised seafood? Yeah, we, we, our focus has really been um, developing a broad array of uh, fin fish species. So really, we see ourselves as a supply chain provider uh, over time, initially focused on fin fish that include uh, mahi-mahi, yellowtail amberjack, bluefin tuna, red snapper, and other species as well. We'll launch them one at a time, but we have in fact uh, already developed a proof of concept back uh, over a year ago uh, that showed that our product you know, at the, at the very small level of, of production, uh, but nonetheless demonstrated the exact same functional characteristics as conventional seafood. And what that really means is when you prepare seafood, you prepare maybe one of three ways. You prepare it raw uh, and you consume it that way, or you prepare it cooked, grilled, seared, sauteed, pan fried, deep fried, steamed, et cetera. Or you prepare it in some sort of an acidified solution, like you're making poke or kimchi or ceviche. And what we showed was our product had the same exact characteristics uh, when it's prepared, tastes the same, smells the same, caramelizes the same. It is fish, just made differently, um, but it really has all the exact same characteristics as, as seafood that we consume every day. And what about the nutritional value? How does it compare to ocean-caught fish and seafood? So we are literally making seafood uh, at the cellular level um, with uh, all the same characteristics as conventional products, including every nutritional element. 
All right. And you got to tell me about the science. How does the science work? How does the fish go from the cell to the filet? <laughs> the science behind this was really developed as proof of concept, you know, over the past 10 years. And what's entailed, whether it's a, a land animal or a sea animal, is, li is literally about isolating uh, the cells from a fish that are the same makeup as what you might consume in a filet. So what we're literally doing is growing this, those cell types specifically. We're growing muscle cells, fat cells, and connective tissue cells. These are the three, three cell types that are really intrinsic in the seafood that we are consuming. So we're growing them independently in large stainless steel containers that look a bit like a microbrewery, these large stainless steel tanks. Instead of wine or beer, what you might have instead is muscle cells, fat cells, and connective tissue cells each grown independently, and they're literally being bathed in nutrients. So some of the same nutrients you might find in aquaculture feed, uh, you know, amino acids, salt, sugars, vitamins, uh, et cetera, are, are being fed to these fish cells and they're growing and growing in really large numbers. Then we are forming these different cell types into a finished product uh, that is in fact the same characteristics and flavor profile and texture as you might find in a conventional product. Blue Nalu was featured last week on the CNBC show Streets of Dreams, and the host of that show expressed some reservations about eating cell-based fish. Is that a reluctance that you're experiencing? Not at all, actually. We have found uh, enormous interest in our product, uh, literally at the 100% level, I must tell you, at the food service level. Um, they are very excited and motivated to put our product on the menu. Um, and like many products uh, in the food industry, we want to begin at restaurants because that's where we can really experiment uh, and really see what, you know, how the product really resonates with consumers. And you mentioned launching over the next year. When will people be able to taste Blue Nalu's fish? As soon as we get through, you know, we're, we're literally putting in place a uh, manufacturing facility and all the equipment. It's the first of its kind in the world to actually manufacture cell-based seafood. So it's an extraordinary technology uh, development um, that is in process. And the second parallel activity is providing all the documentation that FDA requires for uh, you know, that product being accepted into commerce. So we have uh, the challenge of a facility never been done before and a regulatory agency that's never actually validated this process before. Both those things are in process. So to answer your question, um, we're projecting is somewhere around 12 months, maybe 15 months at the most, but maybe 10 or nine or 10 months on the, on the front end where we actually might be able to have a product in our first restaurant. I've been speaking with Lou Cooperhouse, president and CEO of Blue Nalu. Hey, Lou, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. 
In his inauguration speech, President Joe Biden called for bringing unity to what we all know is a deeply hurt, deeply divided country. Right after the president spoke, country music star Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace. Maybe more than any other popular song, Amazing Grace has become a source of strength for many of our country's presidents when things get tough. KQED's arts and culture reporter Cole Veltman spoke to a number of California artists with strong ties to the song about its enduring power and what all of us, including our leaders, can learn from its message. For years, there's been this link between Amazing Grace and U.S. presidents all along the political spectrum. It was played on the bagpipes at Ronald Reagan's funeral. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush have all called the hymn a favourite. And no one can forget that moment in Charleston, South Carolina in June 2015, when Barack Obama took the song to another level. Amazing how sweet. The then-president broke into song in the middle of his eulogy for state senator and church pastor Clementa Pinckney. Pinckney, along with eight members of his congregation, had been gunned down at their church by a white supremacist earlier that month. It was the latest in a spate of mass shootings motivated by racial hatred. That moment the president responded to the massacre by singing the song Amazing Grace is considered one of the most powerful of his years in office. So much so, it inspired a new song, the president came to speak some words and the cameras rolled and the nation heard. Just days after Donald Trump was elected president in November 2016, folk singer Zoe Mulford wrote the president sang Amazing Grace. Many Americans were still reeling from the events in Charleston the previous year. But no words could say what must be said for all the living. Mulford's song lyrics, where no words could say what must be said for all the living and the dead, reflect back to a president who, in her mind, was able to connect with people in their grief. So on that day and in that place, the president Folk radio stations across the country picked up the song. One pretty famous folk singer happened to be listening while driving near her home in the San Francisco Bay Area. When I first heard it, I had to pull the car over because I started crying. That's Joan Byers. And she told NPR hearing that song inspired her to make her own version. A young man came to a house of prayer. They did not ask what brought him there. Here Baez is singing the song on tour in Paris in 2018, where she wrapped up her performance with words about how much she missed President Obama. He wasn't perfect, but he was a president. (laughs) Right now we have nothing. And the president sang Amazing Grace kept going. It inspired a California publisher to commission a children's book. And in those final fraught weeks leading up to last November's presidential election, this video hit my inbox. The 
president came to speak some words and the cameras rolled and the nation heard it features san francisco's kronos quartet and ethiopian american vocalist maklit hadero obama's singing of amazing grace in charleston was a moment maklit says when americans were faced with a choice were we going to choose this path of racist, white supremacist leadership that encourages the darkest parts of American history to wield their guns? Or were we going to choose the possibility of something else? For McLeet, President Obama's decision to sing Amazing Grace spoke to his willingness to be vulnerable. We don't want our presidents to do that. And yet, those can be the moments where we connect as human beings to each other. And so why not have a president that can do that? My president sang amazing grace. Amazing grace, Amazing Grace has travelled far and wide since English clergyman John Newton wrote the lyrics in 1772. It's unclear what, if any, music he used when he invoked it as part of a sermon, but Amazing Grace travelled across the Atlantic where it was enthusiastically picked up by Baptist and Methodist preachers. Eventually the words were paired with the tune we associate them with today. The song took root in the black church, where it's been sung across generations. Now, Amazing Grace, for us, I mean, it is a traditional song, always been a landmark for black America and black church. Margaret Pleasant Duro is a gospel music composer, choir director, and longtime member of the Greater New Bethel Baptist Church in Inglewood. I'm a little bit awestruck when Margaret tells me she was in the audience the day Aretha Franklin recorded her iconic take on Amazing Grace in Los Angeles in 1972. Margaret says it was hard not to sing along with the Queen of Soul. Amazing Grace. We'll just join right in, especially if we know the song, somebody's going to be singing with Aretha Franklin. And Margaret says there's no song quite like Amazing Grace for capturing the black Christian experience. Amazing Grace means something helped us. It was grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us on. Amazing Grace connects deeply with the black church community, but the song has also reached millions of others outside the church because it speaks so eloquently about rebirth and redemption. I'm sober now 43 years, and the amazing thing is that I ever got sober. It's total grace. Folk singer Judy Collins spent part of her childhood in L.A. She released her version of Amazing Grace in 1970 while struggling with alcohol addiction. Bye. 
it's a powerful song which reaches all kinds of people of every race, denomination, religious persuasion, color, character. It doesn't matter who you are. Once you hear Amazing Grace, it sticks. Was blind, but now I see. Many artists with California connections have taken the song in completely new directions, like drag theatre performer Taylor Mac. By the way, Taylor uses the pronoun Judy, as in Judy Garland, not Judy Collins. So in any case, Taylor has unhappy memories of being forced to sing the hymn at Christian Science Church as a kid growing up in Stockton. And everyone sings it kind of, Amazing You know, it's not, it wasn't exactly the most soulful rendition. <laughs> and I can't say that I was particularly drawn to the song at all. But Taylor eventually came around to the song. Dressed in teetering platform heels, a fantastical headpiece festooned with tinsel and a glittering hoop dress, Taylor performed a minor key version as the opening number in a mammoth stage production chronicling the history of American popular music. The critically acclaimed show debuted right before the 2016 elections and toured the US through much of the Trump presidency. It became kind of a prayer for grace for the country. It stopped being about um, God. For me, in the Trump years, it became this beautiful way to start the show and say, hey, we're, we're all praying for actual grace now. <laughs> grace so much right now. Between the racially motivated killings, one of the most contentious elections in US history, and the recent assault on the nation's capital, it's been horrific. And the COVID-19 pandemic has further driven people apart. In fact, Laurie Marie Key, a nurse on the front lines of the health crisis, sang Amazing Grace at an inauguration week memorial service for the more than 400,000 Americans we've lost to the virus. Through civil war, the Great Depression, World War, 9-11, through struggle, sacrifice and setbacks, our better angels have always prevailed. In his inauguration speech, President Joe Biden echoed the core message of Amazing Grace. In each of these moments, enough of us, enough of us have come together to carry all of us forward. And we can do that now. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. In a dramatic moment towards the end of his rendition of Amazing Grace, country music star Garth Brooks reinforced the president's call for unity. I can ask you to sing this last verse with me. Not just the people here, but the people at home. At work as one, united. Amazing. Of course, all of us singing Amazing Grace together won't solve this country's problems, but maybe it's a good place to start. Was blind, but now I 
for the California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman.